Hi everybody, I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest is Dr. Amantha Imba. Amantha has spent years helping people do their best work. As a behavioral psychologist, she knows exactly what it takes to harness your habits to dominate your day. She's helped thousands of business leaders and business owners to become more effective and productive. And with her podcast, How I Work, she shares how to bring the joy back into your workplace. She's here today to share some of that wisdom. Amantha, so great to have you on the show today. It's lovely to be here. Excellent. Now, for our listeners' benefits... Where did your interest in behavioural science first come from? I would say it came from my mum. So my mum is a clinical psychologist and when I was growing up, particularly as a teenager, she would share lots of stories with me about her work and I remember her describing what she did as a psychologist as being a detective of the mind and I thought, oh, how cool is that? And uh, so that eventually led me to a career in psychology. So were you an inquisitive little kid? I think I was. I think I've always been very curious about things and I also wanted to go into a career where I was helping people in in a meaningful way. So I think those two things combined made psychology a good career path for me. Mm. But it, it wasn't probably your original thing was it like I a little birdie told me you had a bit of a passion for music and you're still a bit of a musical <laughs> theatre aficionado <laughs> yes you've done your research <laughs> yes I think you even released an album at one stage Is I that right? did yeah so when I was doing my doctorate in organizational psychology I I was very bored with my thesis topic and was looking really for any excuse to procrastinate. And at the time I was doing a lot of songwriting. I was a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and I thought it would be a fun little pursuit to, um, to record a demo. So I, uh, connected with a producer, worked on that. And then, you know, look, procrastination combined with a, a type A personality made me think, oh, well, I've got a demo. I guess I need a record deal now. And so very naively, I sent this demo off to about 10 different labels. So all the majors and the major independents. And um, I was very fortunate in the Roadrunner Records, who were a very big independent global label, um, offered me a deal. So uh, yes, it was um, it was a, it was an interesting year working working um, towards that with with Roadrunner and doing a lot of gigs and having a lot of turnover in my band at the time. Um, in fact, it was it was quite a horrible year, which put me off the music industry and. Uh, made me redirect all my efforts back into psychology. <laughs> you gave that thesis another go. <laughs> yes, I did, and I got it submitted early, I'm proud to say. <laughs> so, but, but what do you think that life on the road taught you about um, people? Oh, hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Um, I think what I realised about myself and about the music industry is that I mean, it's obviously a very tough industry and it's 
what I learned from working with a number of incredibly talented musicians is that the ones that were career musicians and I worked with like a lot of session musicians who were basically kind of like musicians for hire. So if you're recording an album and you don't have a band, you might get um, like a drummer who's a session muso who is basically hired to um, learn and play the songs um, and then they're, you know, back out to their next job. And really every single musician I met during that year and played with, um, it's like music was in their blood. It would have been a crime for them to pursue any other career path. And for me, I... I felt like a real fraud for a lot of that year because for me, music was just this on the side hobby that seemed like a really um, productive way to procrastinate from writing my thesis when, you know, really I could have, you know, it was like give or take, um, you know, I could have given it or I could have taken it, you know, um, uh, in terms of a career path. It was definitely not in my blood. Um, and for a lot of that year, I thought, like I almost felt guilty that I was taking, you know, one of the, the sacred spots of being selected as a recording artist um, from someone that, um, you know, deserved it more than me. So it, it was interesting thinking about that. So I guess it made me realise that there are some career paths that are just so hard that to pursue them, I feel like it just, it has to be in your blood um, and almost like nothing else will do uh, in order to, I guess, summon the resilience that you need for some of these career paths. Mm. All right. So you went, nope, it's not for me. It's not in my blood. It doesn't, I, I love it, but it's it's not what I'm going to do with my life. You finished up mm -hmm. your thesis. Then what was the impetus to go out into business for yourself? Well, after I'd finished my thesis, uh, I quite quickly got a job in advertising as a consumer psychologist. So I worked for a couple of big ad agencies, understanding consumer behaviour and essentially helping brands figure out what was going to be the most compelling message that they could give to the consumers to make them buy more of their product. And intellectually, I found the work fascinating. Um, but Ethically, I I would often ask myself the question, you know, I went into psychology to help people, but really what I was doing in advertising, I mean, there were certainly some campaigns that I worked on that, that were promoting great behaviour, but for every one of those campaigns, there was another one where I was trying to help people eat more chocolate bars or something like that. And so I knew that it wasn't for me. I knew that it wasn't a long-term career path. And so after about five years in the industry, um, you know, which was great. They were a great five years. I gave my boss three months notice and I said, I'm going to be out of here in three months. I don't know what I'm going to do, but um, I knew that my role was a really hard one to recruit for. Um, I know that it had taken six months to find me um, and I, I sort of wanted to do the right thing by my employer. And I had no idea what I was going to do other than I wanted to go back to my organizational psychology roots I wanted to be um, you know helping people develop skills that were useful um, and, and really uh, you know help people in a way that felt more meaningful to me and so I interviewed for a bunch of positions but I couldn't find anywhere where I really loved the culture or I loved the IP or the tools that I'd be working with um, although there was one job that I did find 
that I thought was my dream job, but they didn't want me. So uh, the plan B was start my own business. And I thought if it, if it all flops, like in six months, like I was in my late twenties, I had no big financial commitments or anything. I just thought I can get some contract work to tide me over until I figure out what is the next thing I'll be doing. So I started Inventium as a planned plan B and just sort of hoped for the best. And that that's kind of how yeah. it happened. Now, before we dig into that um, a bit deeper, I'm interested in that consumer behaviour, buyer behaviour kind of thing, because for a lot of our listeners that are small businesses, that's information that is so essential to their success. Is there anything that you could give them in terms of kind of insider tips or tricks when, when they're trying to up their sales, what they should be looking for in terms of consumer behaviour? I think that the biggest and most important lesson that it taught me was about the importance of brand, your brand and standing for something that is unique. So when I started Inventium, it was an innovation consultancy. So we um, we helped organisations, mostly large corporates, uh, build better capability, turn them into better innovators, essentially. Um, but, you know, there there are a lot of companies that do that, more so now than there were when I started Inventium. But still, I knew that I needed something to make Inventium unique, essentially something to give people a reason to buy Inventium services as opposed to get the same kind of thing from another small consultancy or a big consultancy like um you know, like a big consulting firm. And what I knew was a strength that I could bring to the business um, and that I couldn't see anyone else doing was taking a science or an evidence-based approach. So something um, I I thought that was unique that I could bring to the brand was I'm, I'm naturally a science geek and I thought that I had a knack for making quite complex um, you know, peer-reviewed papers and, and findings in, you know, various psychology journals, making that complex science very practical and simple for organisations to take and apply strategies that have been scientifically proven to work. So the brand positioning of Inventium, um, certainly for the first decade, was around science-based innovation. And that made us really unique. And I could see that we were in when we were in like a competitive pitch situation, it gave people a reason to buy Inventium and to convince their boss to buy Inventium over another innovation consultancy that didn't have, um, you know, like what is called in advertising or marketing, a unique selling proposition. So I think that was the biggest and most important lesson that I learned from my days in advertising and it's served me really well as a business owner. So you really need to understand what's unique about your business and what's drawing the customers to you? Exactly. So understand what are your unique strengths, but importantly, understanding also what a customers want, what matters to them, and trying to find where is that crossover in the Venn diagram. So think about what matters to customers, what are the strengths that you have that make you and your business unique, and where's the crossover? And for me, that crossover was around a science-backed or evidence-backed approach. 
Mm. And uh, you mentioned that um, you're working with some big um, brands in the innovation space. So you work with like Google and Apple and people like that, helping them be more effective with their innovation. But um, how do you think the what you picked up there, is there anything that you picked up there in terms of the expertise you were sharing with them that also would apply to a small business? Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just thinking about how to answer that one. Um, you know, like are there I any, just, um, yeah. sorry, I was going to say, are there any inhibitors to productivity and growth that are maybe universal perhaps? Yeah, look, I, I think that there are a lot. Um, I think that one of the most important things that I've learnt um is the importance of falling in love with the problems that you're trying to solve and not falling in love with the solutions and the ideas. So if you can stay attached to like, what are the big problems that you can solve for your customers? What are their pain points, their peeve points, if you like? Um, and, you know, that that is, you know, where the best innovation comes from. And then when you've got that idea, like it's really easy to get attached to ideas because they're these like sort of bright, sexy things. But if we get attached to an idea, we lose sight of when that idea is not actually connecting with our customers. So, you know, the thing I would say that successful organisations that we work with who have got a really great approach to innovation would have in common is that they experiment with their ideas. So they would use like, you know, a, a lean startup approach, for example, where they will, you know, look at the idea that they think um, has some good possibilities and they will set hypotheses around why do they think this idea is going to add value to the customer's lives. Then they'll create um, a prototype or a minimum viable product, an MVP, if you like, to test that idea with real clients or customers and iterate based on the data that they get. Um, So in the early days of Inventium, I had no idea about experimentation and I was very guilty of falling in love with ideas and spending way too much money implementing ideas that ultimately flopped and costed the company a lot of money. Um, But since like learning about the power of experimentation, it's, um, you know, it's like uh, it's, it's as natural as breathing now in terms of how we think at Inventium and how we train our clients to think as well. It's like if you've got an idea, well, don't just go straight to implementation unless it's like a no-brainer, not a risky idea, in which case it's possibly not that innovative. Um, but we would always then just default to, okay, what's the experiment? What's the first experiment that we're going to run here? to test this idea. Um, and, and I would say there's not many weeks at Inventium that go by where I am not running or contributing to an experiment that the team is um, is doing. Hmm. So uh, that sounds like uh, you need to have your brain on the ball all the time for that kind of thinking, Amantha. So are there any kind of rituals that you you have to make sure that you've always got enough kind of mental space to do the work that you need to do? I have a lot of rituals um, and and certainly um, I've I've learned a lot of rituals from hosting the How I Work podcast for four years now where I talk to some of the world's most successful people and understand 
like how do they do it how do they use their time so well and achieve so much more than the rest of us mere mortals and then um there were probably quite a few strategies that I doubled down on um because I recently released TimeWise, um, which is my third book, which goes into some of the most impactful strategies I've learned around how to use my time wisely. And so I would say the things that have been absolutely critical to me, um, you know, I, I think, you know, being more productive than the average person, because I do think very deeply about how I use my time and how I can spend my time well, um, is that firstly, I work to my chronotype. Um, so a chronotype refers to the natural peaks and troughs in our energy levels over a 24-hour period. Um, it's largely genetically predetermined. Um, there are, you know, broadly speaking, three types. There's sort of larks who are stereotypical morning people. They do their best work in the morning. There are owls. They're the opposite. They do their best thinking and work at night. And then there are middle birds who sort of are a bit like larks, just delayed by an hour or two. So middle birds are typically at their most alert between nine and 12 in the morning. So I know for me, I'm naturally sort of on the cusp of lark and middle birds. So I always um, uh, do my, uh, my work that requires the deepest amount of thinking and focus and attention in the morning. Um, I also time block. So um, I book meetings with myself to work on those important tasks so that there's no procrastination. It's like you wouldn't not turn up to a meeting with someone else. So why would you not respect a meeting with yourself? So I book meetings in my diary with the most important things that I need to get done um, that day. Uh, and I've also, um, I would say, trained myself to become very good at switching off digital distractions. Um, and basically not not letting myself sort of succumb to the siren song of email or social media when I really need to be doing focused work. Yeah, I think I got an email from you once and it's like uh, I don't um, – I'd sent you one and the reply was kind of like an auto-reply that you don't answer your emails until a certain time. Yes, I did used to have that as an auto-responder that I typically don't check email until late morning until I've done the stuff that matters to me that's going to progress me closer towards my goals rather than starting my day off reactively. Um, I actually, I, I since canned that autoresponder, someone that I um, interviewed a couple of times on, on how I work is Cal Newport. And um, I remember the most recent uh, interview I did with him was just after he published his latest book, A World Without Email, which is a fascinating read and looks about our addiction to email and how we can you know, essentially use it less. And it made me think, you know, with that autoresponder, I'm actually creating a lot of email pollution by telling people that. And at the end of the day, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not a I'm not a heart surgeon. I don't really have too many work emergencies and they're certainly not a matter of life or death. So people know that I am very reliable and very conscientious and I will get back to them. So really do I need to be polluting everyone's inboxes with this autoresponder? No, I don't, and so I stopped that autoresponder. <laughs> but you still don't get stuck in that rabbit hole of email, do you? <laughs> exactly. Most mornings I don't, but I'm not superhuman, so some mornings I absolutely do. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a trap. It's a terrible yes. trap. How can how – can, um, because it is – business owners are so time poor. They're juggling so many different things. How can they kind of manage their inboxes better? 
Well, it does. Um, I would say it does depend on the business owner's role because some business owners have successfully um, delegated and moved themselves into a position where they work on the business as opposed to in the business for the majority of the time. But other business owners still very much work in the business where they are the first point of call for customers. And so therefore, it does matter that you get back to customers quickly. So I'd firstly say there is that caveat. But I would also say um, there's not too many um, business owners that couldn't afford to be off their email for just one hour in the morning or whenever your peak um, thinking time is. So I would say just set yourself the challenge to stay out of your inbox for one one hour block of time where you are doing like working on your business and doing the most important thing that you could be doing to um, progress your goals for the business where distractions are just going to get in the way and slow you down. I think that that is achievable for most people. Like if you think about the number of one hour meetings that you're in where you are off email and did the world fall apart when you're in that one hour meeting, not checking emails, the world probably didn't fall apart. Hopefully goes to show this is an achievable um, goal to, to have as potentially a daily goal. Mm. What about your phones? Everyone's like at their screens all the time. I know. Look, my my favourite app for getting off the phone, and I will say like when, when you hear advice around how to stay off digital distractions and just stay focused on the work that matters, you can either rely on willpower um, and just say to yourself, <laughs> I'm going to focus and I'm not going to check my phone because I know I shouldn't check my phone. But the thing is, willpower is a limited resource and ideally you don't want to be using strategies that rely on willpower. Instead, you want to use what I've heard referred to as brute force approaches that basically put a big barrier in the way of you engaging in the behaviour that you're trying to avoid doing, like checking social media, for example. So um, one of my favourite apps for achieving that is an app called Forest, um, as in like trees, forest. What Forest does is that you set the timer on Forest for the amount of time that you want to do focused work and not be checking your phone or distracted. Let's say it's an hour. So you set the timer on Forest for an hour. Then Forest will grow a digital tree uh, in the app. But if you check your phone during that time, the tree dies. And I know it's just a digital tree, but it's so motivating because who wants to be responsible for killing any kind of a tree? So uh, (laughs) I do do love the app Forest. It's very fun, um, but it's also um, a a good way of staying off your phone for a period of time. (laughs) Well, what about if it's, it's not the devices that are stopping you from doing work, it's that you're a chronic procrastinator? How can you kind of tweak that behaviour? Yeah, procrastination is an interesting one because so many people beat themselves up for being a procrastinator. Um, Some good advice that I've heard around this is people think about procrastination as a time management problem. Like I procrastinate, I don't know how to manage my time, I'm not managing my time well, um, you know, I'm lazy or, you know, all this negative self-talk that happens if you see yourself as a procrastinator or if you happen to be having a day where you're procrastinating a lot. But really procrastination is an attention management problem. Um, It's that we're having trouble managing our attention. And a lot of the time it's because all the digital distractions 
are designed to be highly addictive. They're designed to pull us in. Whereas deep focused work, it's not particularly addictive because it's hard. Um, so I would say some of those brute force approaches do really help with procrastination. But the other thing that you can do with procrastination is sort of look inside yourself and go, like, is it actually something deeper than this? Like, am I perhaps not clear on my purpose or not aligning with my purpose anymore? Am I in like the wrong role? Like, do I need to be delegating more of the tasks that I am finding myself doing in my small business because I'm really hating them and I'm feeling really demotivated. So I think that there's also a deeper conversation to have with yourself if you're finding that you're procrastinating a lot. Um, you know, I remember um, I've, I've interviewed Adam Grant a couple of times on, on how I work, um, who's uh, a, a quite a well-known organisational psychologist from Wharton and hosts um, the TED Work Life podcast. And I remember he said to me, like when he was talking about how he uses social media, he'll often use like, you know, a check of Twitter or, or LinkedIn um, or Instagram as like a little bit of a break, a bit of a treat, you know, when he sort of achieves something. But I asked him like, why, um, like how are you not getting into an internet black hole? Like when you're on social media and he said, well, after I've checked it for a few minutes, I'm just really excited to get back to my work. And so it's kind of effortless to get off it. Um, and I think that that is something um, that is really nice for people to aspire to. If they find themselves, you know, procrastinating, um, it may be a deeper problem um, about really thinking about is what you love to do and what your strengths are aligned with what you're currently doing in your business. Yeah. What if, it, what if they are aligned but you're just not finding the joy in what you're doing anymore? It could be time to take a break. I think that small business owners are notoriously bad at taking time off and disconnecting. And, I mean, that's a recipe for burnout. Um, and I, I think, you know, ask yourself, when was the last time you had a decent break and really switched off? Um, and if you can't remember when it was, I would say it is time to take a little break. Because mm. we need that, that work-life balance don't we to not burn out or kind of yeah. even <laughs> more life than work <laughs> yes <laughs> it's preferable yes <laughs> what about um to-do lists um i sit in a pod with quite a few people that have to-do lists and i am a bit of a to-do list person myself i do get some satisfaction in crossing off the things that I have to do. Um, but I, I've heard that you are, are also a proponent of the to-don't list. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah, so in, um, in, in my book, TimeWise, I do write about a few strategies to do with to-do lists. And don't get me wrong, I love a good to-do list because um, when you use them well, they are very helpful in um, keeping you focused and on track and doing work that aligns with your goals. But um, time is finite and often it seems like the world is about adding more and doing more and adding more and more and more things to your to-do list. Um, and ultimately that's not going to work. That is, again, going to lead to burnout or 
um, you know, unclear priorities or just feelings of overwhelm. And so I got this strategy um, when I had Rachel Botsman on how I work. And she told me, um, so she's a, a, a trust fellow at Oxford um, and very, very famous um, sort of global expert on trust and technology. And she told me how she has a monthly ritual and actually became monthly during COVID where um, at the end of the month, she will sit down and she will think about what were the things that really drained her of energy during the month. And she will write them down and some of them she will commit to what she calls a to-don't list, things that she just won't do anymore. And these can be anything from like, um, I don't do meetings before 11 a.m. or um, I uh, don't... Um, I like don't uh, catch up with this friend. Period. You know, maybe because they're you know she's realised they're actually quite <laughs> energising. Or after yeah. midnight. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Or I don't use social media or check social media after seven o'clock at night. So th- these are some things that have been on her to don't list. And for her, it's really helpful in really being protective of her time and making sure because whenever you say yes to something by nature of saying yes to something, you are saying no to something else. Again, because time is finite. So um, it, it for her, really helps her be much more mindful um, of how she uses her time and how she allocates it and then what she therefore has time to, to say yes. Mm. Do we also need to get better at saying no? Oh, we do. We do need to get better at saying no. And Again, like I, this is something that comes up a lot, I find, on how I work because I'm always fascinated how, um, like, you know, really successful people who are asked to do lots and lots of things, they get a lot of practice at saying no and they've often got strategies. Um, and, and some of them I did write about in TimeWise. Probably one of my favourite ones that I've heard comes from Mia Friedman. And she um, she finds it really helpful instead of, you know, when someone asks her to do something like, hey, you know, can you speak at this dinner event? We often um, say no framed as, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that because I'm busy. And that then invites, well, could you do this instead? Could you maybe do a before dinner talk or, you know, something like that? But instead, Mia's learned that it's far more helpful to frame these things as I don't instead of I can't. So when she's asked to do a dinner talk, for example, um, or, you know, go to a, a dinner event, she says, sorry, I don't do dinner events. And that's just one of her rules. And you can't argue with that. When someone says, I don't do this, like it's not like you can go back and say, oh, well, how about this night for the dinner event instead? Um, yeah. So like no one tells really to the vegan, here, eat this chicken. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly. So I don't makes it feel like it's part of your identity so for me for example I quit sugar eight years ago and I find it's not helpful to say oh I can't have dessert because I don't have sugar instead I say I don't eat sugar I don't do dessert um and no one argues with that and people are like oh okay fine um and for me it's also it's a non-negotiable so it's not like oh should I have the chocolate mousse tonight maybe it's like well no I don't eat sugar. So, of course, the answer is no. But maybe you do eat cheese. That is very true. Yes, I do enjoy a good cheese platter. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Um, we're kind of running out of time, but if I could get perhaps your number one time-saving tip for our listeners. Oh, number one time-saving tip. Look, there's there's so many, but let me give an unusual one that I heard um, from Rahul Vora, who's the co-founder of Superhuman, which is um, in itself, I'd say, the most time-saving app that I use. It's for email, so it syncs with Gmail. Um, that is a time-saving tip. But um, Rahul said to me, Something that helps him save a lot of time is trying to reduce the amount of time he uses his mouse for. And I mean mouse as in computer mouse, not like pet mouse. Um, so <laughs> it takes longer to do stuff. Like this is, you know, for people that are largely based on their computer for work, um, which I imagine there's a lot of listeners, uh, if you're using your mouse instead of com- um, like keyboard shortcuts, it is taking you longer to do something by using the mouse. And if you multiply that over the course of a year and how much time you're doing computer-based work, that can add up to a lot of time wastage. So Rahul is um, really into learning keyboard shortcuts so that anything he's doing on the computer is going to take less time. So whenever he like learns new software, he will take a few minutes to actually learn the keyboard shortcuts. And look, one of the beauties of keyboard shortcuts is a lot of them are generalizable. Like, you know, command or control C means copy something in almost every software. Um, And there'll obviously be ones that are unique to software. But that is something that he does um, that was one of the most novel tips I've heard for saving time and something that I've since adopted and it saved me time. I love a good keyboard shortcut. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Mantha. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me.